Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. See what the library can do for your creative endeavor at cpl.org. Again, that's cpl.org. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And when you do, rate and review us. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anywhere you can find a podcast. And when you rate and review us, it helps other people find this show. And if you have any feedback, be sure to send it my way. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, Ohio Democratic Party Chairman David Pepper. So who is David Pepper? David is probably a much more exciting individual than Let's On. You know, you kind of think of a party chair as just being sort of a, you know, hackish kind of guy or whatever. Uh, that guy has had a crazy life. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare everyone on this show. He has had, a, he called it like a Forrest Gumpian life. Yeah. Which so, is somewhat true. So he, he's not very bland. He has a little bit of spice. Like, like, like pepper? Like pepper. Oh, you guys got it. Good job. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's definitely a fascinating interview. I'm going to spoiler uh, a little bit here and say that Putin uh, and Henry Kissinger are both involved in this first segment. And um, I, I guess I'll let you guys kind of figure out whichever uh, way you think is uh, they're going to be incorporated. So, And we also had Jane Timken on, who's the chair of the Ohio Republican Party. So you might as well get both of our boxes checked off and ask the Democrat guy to come on, too. All right, with that, let's get to the interview with David Pepper. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right, so let's get started with it. So you're kind of Cincinnati royalty in a way. We were going through your background, and uh, you're a fifth-generation Cincinnatian, correct? I am, yeah. And your father, John Pepper Jr., worked at Procter & Gamble for 40 years. I think I saw that your uh, grandfather was the head of obstetrics. Obstetrics, yeah. Obstetrics. He delivered... He delivered thousands of kids, and uh, that was it. Was it UC Cincinnati, or was that it? Uh, he taught there, but also at uh, Children's Hospital. Okay, okay. Um, and like I said, your dad also served as CEO of Procter and Gamble, one of the more yeah. uh, the, the bigger employers there. So um, I'm hoping you can fill in some of the details. Like we, a lot of your family's background is online, but can you just tell me a little? Sure. Bit what Actually, it was like what's up? interesting is my dad was uh, a newcomer to town after college. He did a naval. He did a uh, naval scholarship and went to P- went to Cincinnati to take his first job at P&G at the very bottom. Uh, my mom's side is the one that's been in Cincinnati all that time. So he was uh, in Cincinnati. Procter & Gamble is one of the bigger companies, and they bring a lot of people from the country. So the, the side of my family that's uh, been in Cincinnati for generations is my mother's side. And as you said, her father was an uh, obstetrician who delivered, as, uh, as I discovered as a candidate when I mentioned his name, a whole lot of children in the world and when I first candidate when I first ran as a council member and I'd go to senior centers and mention his name about half the women would nod uh, because he they had been his uh, patients so his name was uh, their last name was Garber that's my mom's maiden name and then before him uh, he had uh, uh, his dad was an architect and and uh, designed a lot of the 
uh, school buildings of Cincinnati from a century ago. So yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm proud of my family and they've done a lot in Cincinnati and, and as my parents have and, and before them, they've always given back. So I don't think we'd qualify as royalty, but I certainly am proud that our family's done a lot in Cincinnati over the generations. You know, I have to ask, we have had several uh, Cincinnati politicians or political figures on this show thus far, and it seems like everybody has a PNG background. What is it about PNG that makes people either want to go into politics? So, I don't, you know, it's funny. No one in my family had ever done politics, so I did something completely different um, from from the rest of them. But... You know, it, it is it is the, one of the largest employers of Cincinnati, and it's a if you're into uh, if you're coming out of business school anywhere in the country and you want to do marketing or brand work, it's one of the best companies in in the world that do, does as much advertising as anyone. So, someone like my dad who was from Philadelphia, never been to Ohio, you know, if he he wanted to do that kind of work, and so this is a company that that. Um, that uh, people from around the country and world apply to. And, you know, one of the things that, that I believe put, put my city council hat, my old Cincinnati council hat on, and this is true of Ohio, you know, when we have anchors that draw talent in from around the, the world, like you do with the Cleveland Clinic, I think we need to be a lot smarter about taking advantage of the time that people are in our cities for that reason to keep them here. My dad's a perfect example. He came to Cincinnati for a job when he was 25, where he made less than my mom did, uh, but something about Cincinnati drew him. He stayed. He never. He didn't plan on staying for very long, and now he's contributed like you know, like a lot of others. And so we have around the state these certain assets that draw people in from all over the country, and we need to take as much advantage as possible of that. So whether it's Ohio State or the Cleveland Clinic or Procter Gamble, Cincinnati, uh, but yeah. So there are a lot of people with um, with connections because it's such a dominant player in Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, just looking at it on paper, it seemed like you had a, a pretty privileged upbringing. And I'm curious, what was your first job? So I would actually, you know, people look at your family and they see where your your parent end up making it, and they assume when you were born that's where they were. And my dad started at Procter & Gamble in the mid-'60s, and he made like eight grand. And I was born eight years later. He was not the head of the company until I was in college. Uh, so I'm not complaining. We ha- I was I'm very privileged in, in well, tell what ultimately happened to him, but I grew up in a pretty normal family of a dad who started with nothing and spent half of his money helping pay his parents' medical bills back in Philadelphia. So I grew up in a—so my dad's been a penny pincher his whole life, um, and, um, and we had Wiedemann beer and Circle K Cola in our closet as kids because he wanted to save money. So he worked his way up uh, from the very bottom, uh, but he never changed— from the from from his mindset from where he started, so I think that that over time my family did well. But we started out, you know, four four little kids uh, of a guy who was basically working his way up the ladder, and he didn't he wasn't in charge of the company until I was off to college. Um, I you know I did a lot of I did a lot of summer jobs. I I think my number one uh, business before even going to college was mowing lawns. I spent a lot of time in the summers painting cabins. We we have a cottage up in Canada, and I was, um, I don't think I was very good at it, but I painted a lot of cabins about 40 foot up on ladders that I probably shouldn't have been on. Uh, we also ran a garbage boat company when I was a kid up in Canada, so we'd go around in the mornings and get stop at everyone's docks and pick up, um, pick up garbage and take it to the mainland. So it was a combination of... Um, of odd jobs and then you guys may or may not like this but my first jobs in college were all journalism i was the 
I was privileged to be the managing editor of my college newspaper, and I spent every single summer doing what you do, uh, not being paid for it, by the way, but I was an unpaid intern my freshman year summer at the Community Press newspapers in Cincinnati, uh, which I don't know your equivalent up here, but the weekly papers that would cover sort of local community issues, and I spent all summer. I was actually, my first year summer, I was at a um, paper where the reporter was on maternity leave. So they basically, I covered, as you probably have papers up here, I, every, uh, the front page of the paper, every single story was by David Pepper. Yeah, we, we've all had those moments. Yes. Yep. The photographs were taken by me. Mm-hmm. I wrote the obituaries. They made the mistake of letting me write a few opinionated columns. Um, <laughs> and uh, you name it, I was covering it all, which, by the way, were awesome jobs. So my, some, my college summers uh, uh, were, the first couple years were always journalism, which I love to do. And, and it scares my communications people at the party a lot. I still sort of think of myself as sort of a journalist, which is a dangerous thing to think if you're in politics, but that's sort of my mindset because I started out uh, in journalism. I spent most of my time in college was basically as a reporter and ultimately the editor of my newspaper, and most of my friends from college are now all journalists. So I would say outside of like the typical high school odd job type of stuff, I spent a lot of my early years in journalism. And you went to uh, Yale for yeah. both undergrad and for law yeah, school? Yeah, I went to Yale undergrad. Um, so I was uh, so I, again the Yale Daily News was paper worked on. I worked three years a- outside after college. I worked three years um, doing work in St. Petersburg, Russia. This is when I was at a think tank in Washington called the Center for Strategic International Studies. After that work, I was an international studies major and history major. Uh, and after three years of of that, I went back to law school. So and then after that, I returned to. Um, Cincinnati clerked for the Sixth Circuit federal court there for a wonderful man, Nathaniel Jones, who's actually from Youngstown originally. And then after that clerkship, I started, I went to a law firm, but I also ran for Cincinnati City Council. Yeah. So I actually, I just wanted to ask, so you were in Russia. What, what years were you there exactly? So I was in Russia from 1993. And this is sort of the Forrest Gump part of my existence where I was in Russia at a very interesting time interacting with very interesting people who weren't famous yet but went on to be famous but I was in Russia from 1993 to 1996 so it was at the end of it was at the beginning of uh, you know the the new Russia back when actually there were, it was much more hopeful and I was part of a project that was supported by USAID which is that does international assistance I was at a think tank out of Washington and our job was to provide you know guidance uh, and advice uh, through a commission format uh, to the city of St. Petersburg on how to reform themselves following the end of the Soviet Union. So it was a very interesting time. I was in my early 20s. And the summer before that, I actually spent at that same think tank uh, working for his big new Brzezinski. I was a intern research assistant for him all that summer. So as I went through college later on, I, I did everything I could to take my international studies interest and turn it into something. So yeah, I was in Russia for some very interesting years. Yeah, and you uh, had a relationship with Vladimir Putin, if I'm not mistaken, right? Relationship may be overstating it, I, but but what what um, he, so the the commission that um, I worked on was chaired by Henry Kissinger and the mayor of St. Petersburg, whose name was Anatoly Sobchak. And Sobchak was actually the, the one of the authors of the New Russian Constitution, very respected. Uh, had been the dean of the St. Petersburg University Law School, had been a professor there. Uh, but obviously, in, in these types of things, you know, oftentimes those people are busy. Uh, so the, the per- they were people who were assigned as the liaison on behalf of those people. 
And the liaison to Kissinger, believe it or not, who we met with quite often was Paul Bremer, who went on to be famous or infamous for his role in Iraq. The liaison who we often met with for Sobchak was Vladimir Putin. He was the vice mayor of the city of St. Petersburg at the time, my guess is, in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. Um, so, yeah, it was he. A relationship may be too strong a word, but he was the person who we'd often meet with at the beginning of a trip, who would set up our meetings. We'd meet with him throughout. You know, he was sort of the point person uh, to my project. And I can say that no one was more shocked seven, eight years later when he became he was installed as prime minister, obviously about to be the next president. And I thought, wait a second, is that the guy from? And it was. And, and uh, so when I say it was sort of like a Forrest Gump movie, I was somewhere there are probably photos of me when I was like 22 with Putin, who was in his late 30s when he was vice mayor of the city of St. Petersburg and was meeting with us on a regular basis. You got any good stories involving Putin? So um, he, I'll just say what was interesting about Putin was I really enjoyed my time in St. Petersburg. I really enjoyed a lot of the people I met. Um, a lot of them would, would have reminded you, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but kind of like a Yeltsin, bigger than life, kind of enjoying, enjoying themselves in a big way, might have started um, take out a drink at 4 o'clock on a, uh, on a Thursday, and, and sort of this fun-loving kind of personality, and Putin was the exact opposite. He was very serious. He made the trains run on time. He's who you see now. It was the same person that I saw as who you see now. Uh, we knew he'd been a former spy. That was something we knew. Uh, but the thing that I'll never forget, and uh, uh, that that when you really kind of woke up, and I learned enough Russian that I spoke a good deal of Russian, but maybe a year half, a year and a half into meetings with him, uh, we were at a table sort of like this, and we always had an interpreter. And about halfway through the conversation, she clearly made a mistake interpreting his words to English. And it wasn't some easy word like chair. Let's say, you know, it was uh, auditorium or something. He corrected her in English. <laughs> he had never before spoken any English. And all of a sudden we were like, oh, gosh, this guy has known English the whole time. Uh, it was a sort of a window into how he operates. And so I'll never forget when Bush came back from the first trip and said, hey, I looked into his eyes and I saw his soul. I laughed because I had interacted with him for several years and ne you'd never saw anything. And, and, of course, halfway through, you figured out he knew everything we were saying the whole time, but not once, um, you know, let, let on that he did. So when I, when I think about the meeting between him and, him and Trump individually, when I heard Bush say he saw his soul, I mean, having interacted with him enough, I, he, he clearly is playing those guys uh, from what I saw. So you mentioned also, uh, you know, working under Henry Kissinger at that time. Um, I'm, I'm curious, who is the scarier person in person so uh, let me just so I, I won't say I worked under him he chaired the he chaired the commission well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know what was interesting about Kissinger was Kissinger had this incredible sense of humor I mean he half the time during these meetings he chaired have the whole place uh, laughing um, I never I did not interact with Kissinger very much he was such a sort of VIP that he'd come into a meeting he'd leave but one of the interesting things about Russia and this is where I think that you know in a small way I think this is one reason I think Trump is so misplaying how you deal with Russia. Kissinger, for what we were doing, as much as he'd been sort of a cold warrior figure, he was respected by the Russians because they thought of him as sort of a big, tough figure. And my view of a guy like Putin is 
they respect toughness. They don't respect people who just sort of cave and are Mr. Nice Guy or, 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 or engage in flattery. And so they actually, you'd think, well, that's funny. Kissinger was sort of a cold warrior, very anti the Soviet Union. You'd think that would have been a person that would have been not good to bring to St. Petersburg to get things done. It actually was very good because when they sat down with Kissinger, they thought, okay, this is their tough guy. We're tough. We're going to work through with this person. Um, and so when I wa and I actually think that's, they viewed Hillary Clinton as a formidable person. And they didn't want that. They wanted someone who they could walk over, and I think that's what they're getting with Trump. So I think the best way to deal with the, and I saw this with the way they really respect, they, they liked that Kissinger, who they thought of as a very tough, formal person. They thought that's who you work with. That's who you get stuff done with. And I think, uh, you know, Trump, the problem is, he just sort of, they, they view him as, I think, very weak, just sort of you know, sitting around praising Putin every second. I think when they see that, they see weakness, and they run over that person. So Kissinger was, uh, I didn't get to know him that well during this, but th watching the way they respected him because of he, he, he sort of symbolized a, a American toughness, I think that's actually how you get more done with Russia. And I think when they could choose who to help, or hurt, I think they greatly preferred Trump because I, I actually think in the end of the day they, they would have thought of Hillary Clinton as a more formidable person, and they'd rather not deal with that. So, so you were in Russia when they were trying to promote a market economy and democracy yeah. and stuff like that. You mentioned the optimism that people felt. So what is it like now seeing the way the country has turned out? It's sad, honestly. I mean, I, I, I will say I enjoyed my time there, and I, it was hopeful. I mean, it was, and, and there was a lot of naivete about it. I mean, I was there before people were even realizing how much the Russian mafia was going to be a, a, a force. I mean, basically, you, they privatized uh, what had been a public corruption I was there when it was super naively optimistic about, hey, we'll do these economic plans and it'll all turn out well. Um, and I think the whole thing is sad because it really was a time where where there was optimism. Like I said, the, the mayor I worked for was a true democracy advocate. And he was fa he, he, people viewed Sobchak, if you go back and look it up, as the guy who would very likely be president. You never would have thought Vladimir Putin is his quiet sidekick would be anything. Sobchak was the person, and it's because he stood up for democracy. He was a, he was a professor at the law school uh, preaching democracy. He was one of the ones who stood up on, the ta on a tank when there was the challenge uh, earlier on. And it was his hopeful time, and it really ha it is sad to watch them go all the way back to uh, clearly what is autocracy, and, and it, it's, it's been sad to watch. And when I was there... There was sort of an entrepreneurial spirit to a lot of the young people. Um, the The media environment was actually tons of newspapers. They were very open and uh, you, in a way that you guys would like, very quick to criticize local government, you know, uh, state government. It was a very open kind of, it was wild, but it was wild in a way that you thought it was heading towards democracy. And so, you know, 17 years later to see where it is now is is sad. I mean, I really it was not what we not what anyone expected. Although probably people should have been much more cautious. I mean, this was a country that hadn't had real democracy in so long. And what happened was the it really was the economic turmoil and transition was very tough, and there was a sense of instability throughout the 90s. There was a sense that this great country was almost. Um, it was they they were they really this very proud nation felt like they were almost being you know turned into you know a tiny little country that wasn't relevant so when putin came along 
and offered stability, toughness, a total contrast to Yeltsin, who was viewed by the end as kind of goofy, uh, not serious. Uh, people in this tough time, you know, obviously, obviously chose the model of stability and, and you know, the, some of the, the dangers that have, have followed. So it's been, I, I don't like it because I had friends in Russia and I still, I still keep up with them. Uh, and I, I just, it's, it's really sad that it's gone this direction. And by the way, the, back then, you, you remember the old summits? I mean, it was when Clinton and Yeltsin got along well. There were all these positive changes uh, trying, to, trying to take care of the old nukes and everything else. And it really is, it, it's, a, it's a sad direction. And, and you know, there's a, lot to, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it uh, that, I, that obviously, in, in hindsight, I wish people had, had paid attention to a lot earlier. you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So I understand David Pepper was kidnapped and also writes books. <laughs> so the, the whole Forrest Gump thing, I think those two fit, sort of help illustrate the, the life that he's led. Uh, very much so. Uh, so yeah, back in, I believe it was 2002, he was the victim of kidnapping. He tells us about the story after... Uh, you know, or during this segment. And uh, Andrew also asked him about his uh, books. He has taken on a new life. He's no longer just a politician or a politico. He is also a writer. A novelist, if you will. And uh, so I will say that I didn't know the kidnapping story before you dug it up in preparation for this show. And I've known David for eight years now. And I guess it's not something that comes up every day. Like, hey, I got kidnapped. But still, I think that's something that like I would have heard at some point. Okay, so like not to... Sp- you know, spoilers or whatever for this segment that sounds like really cool. But like, I, you know, I wasn't in the interview. Like who, who would want to kidnap David Pepper and why? Well, I guess you're going to have to listen to find out. Yeah. That's a, that's a little, that's what we call it a teaser. Yeah. So with that, let's go ahead and get back to the interview with David Pepper. So you came back from Russia. I believe you worked in the private sector for a little bit. Um, eventually, you became a Cincinnati City Councilman right. at the age of 31? It was 29 when 29. I ran and elected at 30. So I was actually looking through some old clips, and I found possibly the most interesting story I could have found about you during your time uh, as a one? Cincinnati City Councilman. And it was that you were uh, you were kidnapped. Yes. And uh, I, what happened? Really going back into the Wayback Machine. Yeah, I was in my first year on city council, and um, I um, was going home. And uh, I, I lived in an awesome neighborhood in called Mount Adams, that um, right near downtown. It's it's like it sounds up on a hill, looks over the river. And I was going home one day, and and um, I basically got out of my car, going into my home, had left something in my car, went back to the car got the thing I left out of the passenger side seat and turn around and I have two two uh, young people looking at me uh, pointing a gun at me and saying they wanted uh, my money I didn't have any money on me so uh, they said well let's go to go to get some AT- go to some ATMs and um, I think if I had just had one person I would have 
done what I could to not get in the car. And by the way, the police later said, you're incredibly lucky once you're in that car. Normally, that's the most dangerous thing you can do. Uh, but I got in the car and had one guy on my side with the gun, one guy in the back. And we ended up spending about an hour going to three different ATMs. Got every dollar that you know, I was obviously I was as friendly as I could be trying to keep them from, you know, I went back to I don't know where I'd heard. But what, if you're a hostage, you want to you want to seem human and friendly. And so I was as nice as anyone could have been to two people who were doing this to you. And I talked. Um, my goal was to make them uh, like me enough to not to, to just take the money and go. And ultimately, that's what happened. But um, in a couple weeks later, uh, they were caught and ended up each serving in jail for eight years. But, yeah, it was a, it was a wild and they didn't do it because they knew who I was. Uh, by the time we were done with the car, they, they actually—I don't know if it was the right strategy or not—but I actually said to them, "Hey, you may—you know—you may not—you may, may not know who I am, but I'm this guy Pepper, and you've seen oh, oh yeah, we remember your yard signs." Um, and I was talking about things I was That's trying. Good to, name idea. Yeah, it was yeah. good name <laughs> idea. And, and I literally lesson. was trying to talk. My goal was, I want these guys to like me, so they don't do something stupid at the end of this. And uh, we had, so I, you know, I even would do things, and, and it, it, but it became a circus because I was on city council, and um, I, I don't know if you ever hear the name Greg Cordy. He is an inquire. He is a reporter for USA Today. He was the Inquirer reporter. He did the big story on it. Interviewed me the next day, um, but it turned into a, just a media circus. Like the, the, so after about an hour, basically, you know, there's a limit where you can get at ATMs. I cautioned them. I said, listen, guys. We can only get so much here because of moments like this. You, there's a limit. And so I try to talk them through. Tell me the number you want. You know, we'll see what we can get. We hit the limit. And then they said, well, let's go to another one and see. So I said, okay, let's go try. But I said, I don't think it's going to work. We went to two others. And finally, they gave up. Um, and ultimately, they blindfolded me, drove around for a while, and ultimately left the car. Thank goodness, didn't do anything else. Um, and then, as I said, I went, you know, that, that's when I ultimately ultimately called 911 and I didn't even think at the time how crazy I thought when I was calling oh thank goodness I'm safe it's over well that was just the beginning because of course the 911 call goes through the the media hears it I walk out of my law firm where I went to make the call and I'm walking you know there are police there's like tv cameras live coverage I mean it was truly nuts and for a couple weeks it was this big I mean I would literally go into restaurants you know, I was sort of known as a city council member, but you get breaking news like that, and I'd walk in, oh, there's that guy. There's the guy who was held up. And so it was, um, it was, yeah, it was definitely a wild, um, wild uh, episode. So, I, mean, so I, I joke, you know, a lot of people do police ride-alongs. I did a crime ride-along. I know, <laughs> I know what it's like. In, 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 in all seriousness, to see that side of the criminal justice system and to see sort of where it falls short. You know, these guys, um, you know, for a couple of weeks, you know, they knew where I lived. They took my driver's license and said, we know where you live. Don't call the cops. And, of course, I said, oh, I would never do that. Well, of course I did. Um, you know, having them know where you live, where they robbed you, is a pretty scary thing. So I didn't even live at home for a while because they knew that. Uh, but this is an example of how I could see sort of the, the flaws in the system from the victim standpoint. I... Um, they get arrested. I go back home, and then I'm watching the news, and they're out on bail. No one called to tell me. 
which is something you want to know if you were my situation. So I was able to sort of see, and, and all of a sudden, you know, it just, it was a very, it was a good eye-opener into what you go through. And I was very lucky I didn't get physically hit or anything. But one of the most amazing parts of it, now the negative parts was in politics, everyone doubts everything. So there was all sorts of controversy. But what was amazing about it was how many people who had similar experiences, a gun pointed at them, who called up, wrote letters, and said, I know what you're going through. I mean, it really was. Um, to have someone point, point a gun right at you and you don't know what's going to happen, it is something that no one should have to go through. It is the scariest thing you ever deal with. And in a weird way, you almost join a club, and all the people in that club reach out and tell you, I, I know what that felt like. It was, so, it was, a pretty, it was crazy. It was uh, eye-opening. It also was pretty, you know, in the end of the day, seeing how most people responded having seen it it was actually a pretty uplifting in terms of how most people in a community who didn't know me that well would literally i'd go you know i'd go to a reds game and buy a chili and the woman certainly chilled me like i prayed for you i know what you went through uh it was so it was a pretty um different experience for uh for someone who's in politics so kind of another part of your eclectic life experience that you've had is that you've written a couple of novels now mm -hmm. and that's a pretty recent development but right. The for listeners who don't know, um, they are political thrillers and they deal with subjects like, and this was before the 2016 election, a Russian conspiracy to hack the United States government. But also, you talk about you know it stars a it involves like voting machines and gerrymandering. Right. And it stars an intrepid newspaper reporter. So it's it's not that hard to see how your life experiences sort of inform some of this stuff. But how do you come up with the plot arcs for these things? But at some point, at one point, he's kidnapped in a car, thinking about his options. So even right. that is sort of picking up on my own experience. Uh, you know, what's funny is, and this is the worst marketing concept in the world. I my first my first uh, thought was I was writing a novel about gerrymandering which is the world's worst novel idea. Um, but I started writing it because after I ran for state auditors, you'd know, because we met each other then. I ran for state auditor in 2010. I run around Ohio saying, everyone, you have to pay attention to the districting because the no one even thought about it. And so when I was done, I thought, you know, maybe I'll write a book about it, but not some nonfiction that only only Democrats who care about Jeremy and read, but something broader. So the the beginning of the book was all about if you read it and, and i hope people do i don't want to give it all away but it was about you know how you might how how gerrymandering creates vulnerabilities that there are only a few districts that really matter in terms of who controls the house of representatives and that's where i started getting to a plot okay if if you know that and you know as we talked about my because i worked in russia the guy i picked to do the plot is a russian oligarch uh, I didn't pick that because I was predicting Putin's behavior because, as I said, I started writing this in 2011. I picked it because I know Russia and I knew a little bit about how to come up with a good oligarch. But basically the way I started the book was, was, to, was to try and do sort of half fiction but half political education. Here's what gerrymandering looks like. It has a lot of issues. It's got a lot of problems. Uh, one is if you wanted to rig an election, you know exactly which 20 seats you need to go rig. And that's what this Russian oligarch dreams up. And, and as you said, I... I finished it, you know, in 15. I edited it for a year. I put it out in June of 16. And then ultimately, as I joke, my first attempt at fiction failed because it came true. Um, and ever since, I've had people... I mean, I literally had one guy because there's there really is a parallel to, to you know, 16. And my worry is 18 more than 16 because 18 is a congressional election, not just a presidential. But a lot of the, a lot of the plot points, whether it be harassment on Capitol Hill 
whether it be um, a Russian, you know, oligarch, you know, messing with an American election. Now, he did it through voting machines. And so there, it's, it's, I am not saying that that's what happened really in 16. But he did it through something that's talked about a lot, which is insecure voting machines without a true paper ballot uh, that, that could be hacked. And that's something that is sort of a controversy all the time. And, um, and you know, lo and behold, it, it did lead to a lot of similarities. So ever since people who read my book early have later on called me up saying, oh, my gosh, like I thought your book was interesting, but this is getting ridiculous. Uh, so it's been a it's been an interesting little adventure. Uh, so are, are the characters in the book inspired by any real people? And so, for example, the protagonist from the Youngstown Vindicator is that a David Skolnick it, stand-in? It's not David Skolnick, uh, but he was one of my first readers. Actually, I sent it to him, and he called. So David Skolnick, for those who don't know, is the Youngstown. So my main character is a Youngstown Vindicator uh, political reporter. And uh, I picked, no offense to, to you guys, but I, I actually worry even more than about your, your industry. I worry more about the mid-sized city newspapers. Uh, I think they're even more, like your, your old one in Delaware, I think they're even more under the gun. And without them, I think we lose a really important part of our democracy. So I thought my hero would be a reporter at even a smaller paper than like Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, like a, a real mid-sized paper. And, and I've always enjoyed the name, the Youngstown Vindicator. I also wanted to cover Youngstown. Uh, but David Skolnick is basically that job. But I sent I sent him the the um, book, and he called me up. He goes, David, this, and this is really late, so I couldn't change much. He goes, this is so unrealistic. I'm like, oh, no, what have I done wrong? He goes, I could never, I would never be given the bandwidth to be driving all over Ohio like Jack Sharp gets to do. He goes, we're so cut down to the bone that I have to cover school board, like every local council. I can't get out of this county if I wanted to. So I said, okay, fair enough, but I need enough license that my narrator can actually do their job and figure out this plot. But I actually, after talking to him, did add even more about how underfunded and understaffed these newspapers have become. So, you know, there are some, you know, there there is a, to go to your question about characters, there is a scene very similar to that scene with Putin where my Russian oligarch has never spoken English and at the last minute does. And, and everyone else thinks, oh my gosh, he speaks English. So, there are, there are, so there's a little bit of Putin in the, my Russian oligarch. Uh, the, the reporter I sort of made up. There's, he's not really based on anyone. Um, but um, a lot of the things in the book are based on people, real experience. You know, the first, the first sentence of the book is, Nothing makes like my day like a good obituary, which is a really sort of um, not what you'd expect someone to say. And that was based upon my own experience in that internship I talked about, where I was asked as a freshman in college to write obituaries. And I'm sure you guys probably have done this at some point too, but when I was 20, whatever I was, maybe 19 or I was never more nervous about any phone call than calling to do an obituary. Here you're calling someone whose loved one's passed away. And I was, and this is, the book talks about this. I would literally call the number and hang up because I was so nervous to start the conversation. But after a couple of weeks of doing them, I figured out, actually, people love that you're calling because you're taking the life that oftentimes no one knows about or has been forgotten, and you're drawing out the best parts of it. And all of a sudden, the daughter or the husband of the person who's passed away loves that you wrote that obituary. So the first line of my book is, nothing makes my day like a good obituary. And I have Jack Sharp, the character, talking about it. But that's based on literally, you know, I had a, I had a, a, um, 
obituary I wrote early on, and the woman who I was writing about, her last job had been at a, at the con, at a cons factory in Cincinnati, uh, the food company. And I called up the um, daughter, and I said, I'm really sorry to hear about your mom's passing. I, I see that she worked at cons. Can you tell me more about that? And the woman started laughing. She goes, oh, she only did that at the end to make ends meet. My mom was a dancer in Europe in her 20s and 30s, and nobody ever knew it. That was the obituary I wrote. And so, so I'm saying this to say, you know, a lot of the little snippets and, and, and moments in the book are based upon uh, things I've seen or experienced. And I think my hope is that makes it more real to people. You know, I, one, of the, one of the parts of the book that people really were appalled by is where I describe what a call room is like for politicians, sitting there with binders, spending all afternoon making calls back home. People are like, man, that's terrible. Is that real? And the answer is, yeah, it pretty much is. So I try and do as much as I can to bring a light on some of the issues in politics that hopefully we can fix. So in your most recent book, The Wingman, uh, there's a passage where the character is afraid that he's being followed. And so it reads, feet from the car, I could see the driver was sitting still facing forward. Worse, someone was in the passenger seat. Besides lovers, who sits in the car together at 1030 at night? I couldn't help but ask, is that inspired by anything in real life that, that you know, is prominent in your life? No, actually, I, I even forgot about that, that part of that book, but um, I hope you're not referring to I'm, something I'm, up here. I'm making um, a joke about okay. yeah, the 2014 uh, yeah, election. Yeah, no, that's what, no, I, I had never before thought of that connection, but who, who knows what inspires you? <laughs> nice one. <laughs> so, uh, so you mentioned that you, your family doesn't really have a particularly political background. Right. Um, obviously, the jump from running for a local office to a state office is a big one. So what, what is it that made you want to get into politics in the state level and run on that level? In the so what's place? funny is what got me into politics was I never grew up very partisan. I actually, and some of your listeners will like this, others won't. I will never forget, I was sitting around uh, at, at Yale my freshman year in it's going to sound old, but it was uh, fall of 89, and there was a survey that went around the dining room table. How good of a job do you think George Bush is doing? And Yale's a pretty liberal campus. They probably, a lot of them were from Massachusetts, who had probably been cheering on Dukakis. Well, Bush is also a Yale graduate. Yeah, he is, but yeah. forget, that doesn't matter. I mean, if, uh, that, that is not what people are rallying around. They, they, it's a liberal campus. And I'll never forget, we all turned in our papers, and everyone was giving him like a 20 out of 100. I gave him like a 70. And people were looking at me like, what are you, what's wrong? And I was like, he just got started. How, how's everyone already upset with him? I mean, it, which going back in time makes me realize I really had very little partisan, a partisan bone in my body. I was like, give the guy a chance. Um, so I was sort of like, I mean, I t mentioned before I went back to clerk, I was basically about international affairs. I worked in Russia. I was at a nonprofit think tank. But the one thing I would say about myself was if, when I was in college, I, in law school, my, freshman, my first year in law school, I won an award. I was named most likely to be president of the Cincinnati Board of Tourism. If people knew anything about me in college or law school or in Russia, it was that I was from Cincinnati and I didn't stop talking about it. I was P.G. Sittenfeld would be similar, by the way. Cincinnati all the time. That's all. I mean, Reds, Bengals. I mean, even when we were terrible, I'm bragging about them. You know, the Bearcats. And so what drove me to politics was honestly, I go back and I clerk for Nate Jones on the Sixth Circuit, and it was a time where Cincinnati was falling apart. I mean, we literally had, if you remember, uh, you guys might, might have been a little young, but 2000, 2001, our police community relations reached a point where we had riots on our streets, whole world's watching, boycotts of the city. I mean, disaster. 
And and the guy who had always been bragging about Cincinnati as a kid kind of woke up and thought, geez, I've been bragging about my city all these years, but we're a basket case. And so without having done much politics, I thought, I think I can do a better job than these people in city council. And I showed up and, you know, I, I was certainly more progressive. I was progressive, so I knew I was a Democrat, but I hadn't been involved in any way. In fact, you're not allowed to be as a, as a clerk for a federal judge. So I just showed up a few months later and decided to run for city council, having never run for anything. And as I joke, I literally bought a book, a couple books online from Amazon, How Do You Run a Campaign? And I followed the books and I worked hard. I, I mean, you may know I finished first out of 26 people. It was like a, this shocking win. Uh, a guy who had never done anything hadn't hadn't and and it's not like I started out and my dad is was a business guy but it was not a political name early polling early in the race I was at like seven percent in twenty second place but I went a little nuts I'm a competitive person I coined my yard sign just add pepper that that seemed to catch on on a, on the and I was the in hindsight in a in a city that was falling apart I was the perfect change candidate. I ran ads about Cincinnati Council's bickering as everything moves across the river. You know, I'm sure the Democrats on the council couldn't believe I was literally ripping. I didn't even think about it as a negative ad. I just thought this is what everyone's saying to me. And on election day, every single poll I went to, I'd say, I'm David Pepper. And everyone would say, just add Pepper. And they literally would shake their hand because at the shake their hand like a pepper shaker because at the end of my goofy ad, there was a pepper shaker that would bounce along the screen and pepper would fall out. So I thought, everyone knows my slogan. My slogan is my name. It's 26 people, you get nine votes, and I end up finishing first. So that's, but I would tell you what got me into politics was actually that I cared about Cincinnati. I mean, that, that sounds cheesy, but it's actually the truth. I wasn't sitting around in the political clubs in college or anything. And then I ran again. Uh, I ultimately, I ran for mayor didn't quite win. I, I won the primary, lost the runoff, got on county commission. What happened with statewide was that, honestly, uh, Ted Strickland approached me because you, you remember in 06, the one race that we didn't win was the auditor race, uh, and auditor is one of those apportionment board jobs. And I was you know, on the county commission. I would have either run for re-election to Hamilton County or run for statewide, and par mainly because of, of the opportunity, frankly, to try and end gerrymandering. I agreed to run for auditor. I'd also done a lot of stuff around uh, running government well, which I would have hoped to have done as auditor. But, but uh, the governor and the party approached me to think about running statewide, and that's what got me into it. I had I really hadn't done much. I mean, I was so focused on Cincinnati and the county. I really didn't have much. No, I didn't really know the state well. I certainly didn't know Columbus well, uh, which honestly I I think still is a good background for the job I'm in because I'm not some insider statehouse person. I, I haven't been. The politics of the state house horrify me, honestly. Like the, the, the pay to play, the, the, the lobbyist stuff. I still drive to and from Cincinnati every day from Columbus, which I think is healthy because I think in that bubble, they still don't have a sense of how bad. And we see it with the Rosenberger stuff and the trips and the ECOT. And I came from a politics that, frankly, is a lot cleaner than Columbus. And I think that every day I still am aghast by what it is there. And I think it's it's sort of healthy that I, even though I'm the chair of a party, I still think of myself as an outsider to a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff. I started out because I cared about Cincinnati, no political background, and I still hope to bring that kind of perspective. And that's one reason, you know, I hope people see that we've tried to change the party. The most important thing I think we've done as a party is what we call our Main Street Initiative. Every single year, we help people at all levels learn how to run for office, 
and if it's school board or mayor or city council, I don't want them to do what I had to do, which was go buy a book on Amazon. I want them to have a party that's saying, hey, you want to be on your school board? We're here to help you do it. In the last couple of years, we've done that all over the state, you know, and now those people, some of them are doing things like Aftab, Purval, and others. Uh, but our, our, the heart of what we do now, and a lot of this is based on my own experience, having started from scratch, is if people want to make a difference in their community, we want to help them get there. And, and a lot of that comes for the very reason I ran in the first place. So you lost the races in 2010 and 2014. So how is it that you came to be the leader of a political party? Uh, good question. I, I, I am a, pre I am a um, member of two of the worst political years uh, classes you could ever run in. Uh, I think that, you know, you'll have to ask the people who, who voted for me. But I think even in losing, uh, people see that I um, knew how to run a, a decent campaign. In 10, you remember, uh, that was a blowout year. I think Portman won by 18. Um, most of our candidates lost by double digits. I lost by five as a first-time statewide candidate. I outraised Dave Yost four or five to one. The, the party was the one who had to had to save him by attacking me through all sorts of goofy ads. Uh, I got endorsed by every paper. Um, you know, we ran circles around him as a candidate. It was just a bad year. So I think people could tell that I knew what I was doing, and, and knew how to run a good campaign. 14 was 14. Uh, we talked about, we joked about it, but it was not a great year to be number two on the, on the uh, ticket. Uh, I still would say, you know, from the moment I entered the race, I actually held even with Mike DeWine uh, in fundraising, which is not easy to do when your opponent does pay to play as egregiously as you could, and you're still able to keep up with him. Uh, but it was just not a good year. But I think peop hopefully people could see that I, I knew what I was doing when I was, when I was in local office. I, I'm proud of the work I did as an office holder. Cincinnati, I talked about how badly it was doing when I was there, thanks to a lot of good people. Uh, we, were, we had a great team. Cincinnati's doing great now. We've become a model on some reforms around police community relations. So I think the combination of having run strong campaigns, even in tough years, uh, but also having actually done good stuff as a, as a public servant. I mean, obviously, you'll have to ask people who voted for me and asked me to do it, but... Um, but uh, I think together, people understood that 14 was about as bad as years you could run. So it's not like people are saying, hey, you know, you, you blew it. Um, I was uh, I'm proud of the efforts we put in both those races. So you, uh, you've got young kids, you're writing novels, you mentioned that you commute from Cincinnati to Columbus right. every day. So how do you find time to do all the political work that you need to do? To do what? To do the to run the party, that's to focus on it. party development. That's, and all almost, that. that's most of it. I mean, if, if I write, you know, half a page in, in a couple of days, I'm doing well. It's just, um, it's, it's hard to, to do. So almost all my time is, uh, you know, I, I purpose, I'm a lawyer. I purposely left my law firm uh, and didn't seek another law job during this time. It is a full-time job. Uh, so, you know, I don't golf. I don't do much else. So if I, you know, when I squirrel away a little time to write a book, that's, it's, it's, in, it's instead of, you know, the, the things that normal people do like golf or go out at night. But, you know, obviously my priority is my family. I dropped my son off at school this morning. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I certainly, this is far more than a full-time job in terms of both hours and energy put to it. And the, the writing of the book is sort of a, uh, a thing I do like a hobby. And I'm glad it's done well. I mean, that's exciting. Uh, but it's certainly in the next 68 days I won't be doing much writing. So besides being kidnapped and also writing books, David Pepper ha happens to be the uh, Ohio Democratic Party chair. 
uh, in his day job. What does he make of 2018? You do sort of forget that this guy is like running a party when you're listening to this podcast because he's telling all these fantastical stories. But, uh, you know, we've had a lot of Democrats on this show and uh, we've asked them and uh, about the party and what they think of the performance. And a lot of them have been pretty critical. And I found that, uh, you know, he, he probably took that criticism about, what would you say, like 50-50? I mean, I think he understood some of it for sure. I mean, you you lose all the elections that they've lost, yeah. and I mean, you know, we got kind of have to, yeah. right? Um, so we we did talk to him about what he thinks the remedy for uh, them just losing constantly is, and um, <laughs> is, is, is <laughs> Sorry, it winning? Is that the remedy? <laughs> I mean, yeah, winning <laughs> that, is the that remedy. That really but... seems like the way you phrase that makes it seem like really futile, like you know what the remedy is for them losing all of the time, you know. Well, anyway. when you think of the people that we've had on the show, they feel that way as well. The Democrats do feel that way. They've had one governor. They've only had the governorship for four years since, what, 1990, I think is the date. Uh, since the year of my birth. You know, the only one who's had really continued, sustained success is Sherrod Brown. And um, he's done that kind of, I, I don't know, maybe in spite of him being a Democrat. Yeah, I think that's just because he's Sherrod Brown. I think a lot of people would agree on that. What do you think? Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, uh, so David is trying to lead the party in a new direction. Um, and something that he has emphasized since he came in was actually developing younger candidates. And that's always been the big problem with Democrats is you can't develop a candidate if you kind of put out this slate of candidates and they all get crushed. And then they don't really have anything to really build off of. So the formula that they're going to try to follow is actually help cultivate some of these local officials, develop them to be on a statewide slate. I think they've got strong candidates this year. I mean, it, we don't know how it's going to turn out, of course, but. Well, you know, it's like uh, to make a baseball analogy, there's no minor leagues for the Democrats or there wasn't for a long time. So I think he sort of saw the importance, saw what the Republicans are doing um, and really building a farm team. And I think they're trying to uh, just sort of catch up on that. So. To answer the question you asked earlier, how does he think the election is going to go this year? Well, it may shock you to learn that he thought he thinks they're going to win, which I guess is his job to say that. Yeah, that was probably the biggest shocker in this interview, right? I mean, no one saw that coming. But with that, let's go ahead and get to the rest of the interview with David Pepper. So we've discussed the state of the Ohio Democratic Party multiple times on this podcast mm -hmm. with a number of different guests. The general consensus is uh, they've been pretty poor. Uh, they've done poorly electorally right. for quite some yeah. time. Why? A couple reasons, and, and that's again one reason I ran for chair is because I went through it. I went through it as a candidate, um, and I in ten I outraced and out outperformed my opponent in any way you could measure, and I didn't win. And at some point, if you have the better candidates and they are raising more money and they're getting the editorials and everything else, they should win. And if they don't, there's something else going on. I would say that we are a state that leans a little red. We call ourselves a swing state, but but if you look at the last thirty or forty years. We win in certain unique moments or with certain outstanding candidates, but I think the default is we're a little red. Uh, so I don't sit around and every time the party didn't win in the past, either when I was running or before, say, well, that was just because of the party because I actually think that you add it up and, and it's, it's a state that seems relatively comfortable with Republicans leading the state. I mean, that's, I think, the, been, been the default. I don't think the, in the past... Even I describe my experience. Even after I won that office of city council, I finished first out of 26. I'm 30 years old. I'd done very well. Never heard from the state party. Never heard from them. Uh, I don't think the party has done nearly enough to build a bench 
of strong candidates at the local level. And I think that's where it all starts. So the first thing I announced when I became chair was not, hey, what are we going to do for 16 or 20? It was, we're going to start helping people get elected. We're going to help a guy named Aftab Purval in the clerk of courts race in Cincinnati. We're going to help, you know, elect city council members in Wilmington and Chillicothe and all around the state. And I don't think the party had an aggressive bench building mindset, which is where it all starts. Uh, and it's where a lot of the energy comes from. And I think that is pr that's the most important thing a party can do year in and year out. There's no such thing as off year election. You shouldn't use that term. Uh, and you should be building every single year. And, and from that follows a whole lot of other things. Uh, so I don't think the party was building a bench that well. I also think, and this is a national problem, I think that the, that the Democratic Party more broadly has got itself into uh, a position where it gets so excited about candidates, like super candidates, that it hasn't created a more permanent infrastructure of getting the vote out, talking to voters. So what would happen would be every four years, we'd turn into a massive operation to help Barack Obama, and a week after that was over, it disappeared into nothing. And so two years after that, people are running around trying to figure out how do we put this all back together again for the statewide races, and there was nothing put back together, and we lose. Um, and, in, in, and I think that in addition to the bench building, trying to build some more permanent infrastructure, which is investing in technology, which is building up grassroots infrastructure that sustains, uh, that's also something that we work very hard at. Uh, and one of the best things happening in politics right now in Ohio is that um, you have, in addition to what we're building, these amazing grassroots groups like Indivisible and others that are also built since Trump won. And if you look at Danny O'Connor's special election, essentially a tie, a lot of that was fueled by incredible grassroots energy by progressives who are out there, who, who protested T-Berry for a year because he wouldn't do a town hall meeting, and then got into get-out-the-vote mode once there was a special election. So I think a couple key things are you know building a bench every year. I don't think that was happening. And having a long a long-term infrastructure, talking to voters digitally, in person, every single year, and we're working very hard to build that. A lot of that is obviously contingent on, you, are you raising enough money to do it? And unfortunately for me, a whole lot of my job, and this is why I say it's a full-time and then some job, is to make sure that as we hire good people to do a lot of the work I just described, we also have the funds to make it, to give it the capacity that it needs. And another problem long-term, nationally and within the state, but especially nationally, is you know, we, we get so energized around certain candidates, we underfund the, the infrastructure that helps lift the turnout to get those candidates elected. And so if they're not the world's greatest candidates like a Barack Obama, the, the, the turnout falls and we end up losing even when we have better candidates. Uh, and, and I think that happened in, in a number of, of examples in the last decade. Have voters simply rejected the Democratic Party platform in the state? I mean, no. I, 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 actually, what's interesting is, and this is true nationally, if you look at the bedrock Democratic issues, they are actually supported almost one after the next by majority voters. Uh, right now, our, our position on health care, I mean, this, is, this almost goes, makes it sound worse for the party, by the way. 71% of Ohioans support Medicaid expansion. That's a Democratic idea. John Kasich is great that he supported it. But that was a Democratic idea, the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion that came with it. Uh, you look at down the line, issue after issue, there is almost no issue where most of the voters don't agree with us. So I, I think we haven't been good at messaging. I think this party has really struggled with messaging. Uh, Republicans are much more disciplined. 
they, they have a couple key things they say they're about. By the way, Donald Trump is ruining that brand. But Democrats have been much less disciplined. Here's an example. When I ran for state auditor in 2010, I, you know, I did what every candidate does. I go out and I, 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 you know, I, I listen to people, but I also do the research. No one ever said to me, hey, David, we're the Ohio Democratic Party. We're really focused on a couple key issues this year. You should incorporate those as part of your campaign. That, that, that kind of herding of cats, so there's a more uniform message that doesn't just talk about issues, but also gets into values and sort of a deep, deeper principles. Our party has just not been as good at that. And so I think the, 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 the sad irony is on issue after issue, we actually are stronger. The voters agree with us uh, on issue after issue. Uh, but we have not, not only have we not done things I mentioned earlier in the past, but we haven't translated those issues into a compelling message or brand that, that, that gets people to sort of ultimately vote for that candidate. So we put a lot of time as a party into making sure that we're helping candidates think through, okay, people love what you're saying about health care. They like what we're saying about ECOT or whatever. They agree with us. But you got to get that into a 30-second ad or into a boilerplate stuff like the Republicans do that connects to people. And you don't, you're not doing it by being a wonk. You're also getting them through values. And I'll give an example of a, of a really good ad that captures this. Sherrod Brown's ad about the dignity of work. That is strong messaging because it's not just about him saying, I support this or that policy. He's getting to a values, and that's how you connect with people. Rich Cordray's first ad, same thing. His ad where he starts out McDonald's, he talks about hardworking families in Ohio. That's actually strong brand building. And one of the opportunities we have as a party this year is I do believe, you know, Republicans have been in very intentional and very good at building a brand. Um, but if you look at the key elements of that brand, Donald Trump is blowing them all up. You know, so many things Republicans have stood for. I mean, look at this. The deficits are ballooning. He can't even lower the flag half staff for a veteran like John McCain. So there's patriotism. No one stands up against foreign interference. So many of their core values, I think he act, he's becoming the value of the party more than those other core values. And I think that's a real opportunity if we define ourselves as a party the right way, I think we can actually start to have the far stronger brand than they have. Um, one of the general criticisms that we've, you know, that I've heard from people, um, uh, grassroots and even some of the rank and mm -hmm. file, is uh, what the consultant class at the top, quote unquote, consultant class, yeah. whatever, uh, makes boneheaded calls. The Ted Strickland endorsement in 2016 yeah. is often cited. Um, what do you make of this upper tranche of the party, or uh, sort of the different tranches of the party? Yeah, I, there, there's this whole consultant conspiracy theory at the party that I can't figure out. I, I said, I'm from Cincinnati. I'm not part of the party. I'm not some insider. I didn't. I, well, don't, I don't think they're ever referring to you. No, as no. Part but of I'm class. saying, like, if they were a bunch of consultants making a bunch of money, I would know about it. Um, there's not. We don't have. We don't have the funds as a party to be paying general consultants to sit around and advise us. I don't tell Sherrod Brown who to use as a consultant. I don't tell Richard Cordray. I don't, so this, there's this whole, so, and normally the people who are bringing this up are other consultants who want to get hired because there are these memos and things about consultants. Like, it's, it, it makes no sense. Like, it, it really is honestly a myth. And it comes up, I, first I've heard of it for a while, but it's, it's a very, I mean, after the 16 election, oh, we lost the, the presidential because of the ODP's consultants. No, we lost it because of Brooklyn decided to not campaign in most of Ohio's 88 counties. And, and, and that's, it had, 
as if our consultants were telling, our so-called consultants were telling Brooklyn how to campaign. So this whole thing about consultants and the higher level of the party, honestly, I, it, is, it is frankly sort of a strange rumor mongering that come after the election, but there's, we, don't, we don't have sort of general consultants who are in my ears saying, hey, you know, do this or do that. We have a very good staff. We have a very engaged executive committee. And we, we sort of, but at the same time, we also, I don't sit around and, and, and guide or tell Sherrod how to run a campaign or cordray. Now, we talk about sort of the joint messaging I talked about. We work together or get out the vote. But the, even the notion that we're sitting around paying people thousands a month to be consultants, like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happening. And so it's a very, you know, I think the failures go back to what we talked about. The party didn't spend enough time building a bench. The party's, as a, and this is a national issue, the party has not been smart enough about building a brand. We've allowed our infrastructure to, to, to fall off after presidential elections. The idea that some, like, top-secret consultants are sitting there in people's ears telling them what to do and that they're the problem, actually, that'd be easier. If that was the problem, you'd fire the consultants. That's not the problem. It, it's been deeper. And, and the other thing I'd say is, you know, when you lose Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and Ohio— the problem is deeper than just a couple, you know, so-called consultants in Ohio giving some bad advice. And, and so some of the things that we're trying to do, and this, I have a very good relationship with the National Party and Tom Perez, we are trying together to fix the brand, have nonstop infrastructure, and build a bench. Those are the fundamentals more than these sort of uh, odd, odd rumors that kind of come up every once in a while, but honestly don't make any sense. So kind of like the bigger point from that, though, I think, is that the party endorsed kind of a, a mainstay over a, yeah. an up and comer. And, you know, obviously there's an argument where you want to have like, how can we win now versus the balance right. of how do we win the future? Um, and, and I guess the other problem with a lot of the young candidates is that if you don't win statewide elections, you don't really have a launching pad. Yeah. So, I, so how do you. With, great question. With, so the candidates you have now, how, how do you keep them developed without, you know, without getting obliterated? Yeah. You'll see how we approach the governor's race. We were, despite everyone sort of making different accusations, we did not endorse. We stayed out of it. We had high-profile debates. We were literally hands-off, and I think we were better for it. Um, so that's our, that, that is our general approach. Um, I don't think, and I learned a lot from 16. Right now, I, don't, I, I think if, if, if the—and this is what Tom Perez of the National Party is saying as well— and we saw what, you know, I think the Republican Party made a huge mistake endorsing DeWine over Taylor. It, it's what made the race so nasty. It's what's made the party still split. When we didn't endorse in the governor's race, basically after people lost, no one could say, well, you know, he, lost, he won because the party had the fix in for him. And so I think Cordray actually launched out of the, of the primary with far more momentum uh, than DeWine because we, he had to go win it. He had to go earn it. He had to go do debates. Uh, so I actually think, you know, as I go through this as, as chair and learn, I actually think that um, generally staying out and may the best person win is the right approach. Your question, though, about uh, about young people. At the same time, I'm not afraid to tell someone if I think they're running a race that is a big mistake. Uh, and I think one of the problems with the current gerrymandering situation is there are a lot of really talented local office holders. And gerrymandering, until this year where we have all this opportunity, has basically given them nowhere to go. You know, people who are a local council member running for Congress is a next step that actually 
is often a very is a step that makes a lot of sense. It's not that much money. They're already known where they are. The leap from local to state is enormous. Um, now, you can do it in a year where you have share on the top of the ticket. So we have some new candidates who are doing it. But like Aftab is a great example uh, where that step from clerk of courts to Congress is a very reasonable step. He can do it. He's doing it. But if Aftab had said to me a couple years ago, hey, I'm going to go run for this, I would say, hold on, you're, you're like, that is, that's a bridge too far, and it may not go well. But generally, I would tell you that, um, that I think the party is much better off actually not playing the heavy and, and having, you know, as we did with the governor's primary, may the best person win. And I think that worked out. I mean, if you, if you look at the Republican primary for governor, the wheels came off when they endorsed DeWine, and it pushed Mary Taylor, who was going to run, into not just being against DeWine, but against the entire party. And I think, and then at the end of the day, when, when DeWine wins, all the Taylor people can't say, well, that was fair, we lost, we'll move on. They're, they're still mad at the party. Now with the DeWine's flip-flop on Medicaid expansion, they're probably even more upset because the very issue they hammered her on is now he flips. So my guess is those divides continue we stayed out. We didn't do anything to help anybody. Uh, they all probably were frustrated at moments because of our approach. But in the end, I think we were much better for it. The other general criticism that we hear uh, when you know whenever we're talking on the show is that the party hasn't done uh, as great a job in the past uh, um, of elevating women candidates. Right. Um, you know, this year you do have Kathleen Clyde who's running for Secretary of State and Betty Sutton running for Lieutenant Governor. Uh, but it's probably worth noting that uh, Betty Sutton had to drop out of the governor's race right. and did two other women candidates. What do you, uh, I guess, what do you think of this criticism, and um, what what is like, what's the solution? How do you I, I, how do you get more women in? One, the you you you're always building that bench, but I actually um, I, I'm not going to speak to Richard Cordray, Betty Sutton teaming up is anything but positive. They work together. There, that's up to her to make that decision, and they made that decision. Uh, I'm very proud. I think this is the year of the woman in Ohio. Ten of our sixteen congressional candidates are women, by far the the most ever. Three of our seven statewide are women. Um, uh, almost half of our state house candidates are women. We've never had anywhere close to this amount of women up and down the ballot. Uh, the Republicans, it's embarrassing. Uh, they, they, um, they not only, you know, they endorse the man over the woman for, for both uh, governor and treasurer. They have one statewide candidate who's a woman. They only have one woman running for Congress. I think this is the year. I think there will be upsets in November. And I think most of them will be women, Democrats, defeating men incumbents. Uh, so I actually think that the, the, the women are leading our ticket all over the state. There are parts of our state where if you go from the congressional to the state senate to the state house, it's all women. And so I think this year, actually, we have an incredible group of women running. And uh, in the primary, we stayed out. You know, I, you heard me talk about it early on. When we had three women running, I thought that was great. Now, people make decisions on a whole variety of reasons, and, and not all of them stayed in it. Uh, and Betty and Rich teamed up. But as a, as a, as a ticket... It's actually the, the strength of this ticket is, is uh, maybe more than anything else in the fact that we have so many women up and down the ballot. And as you saw in primaries all over the state, uh, women are, especially women voters, are given the culture of Columbus where you got people resigning all the time. you got this sites uh, investigation. you got the same thing in Congress. I think women are saying we're going to only fix up these cultures if we get, if we get a lot more women in these offices. You know, a lot of people have described this election as kind of a make or break, uh, so to speak. If Democrats don't win statewide, say for Sherrod Brown in this election, what is kind of what, what's the future outlook of the Democratic Party in Ohio? Then? So uh, I, I actually I, I do not spend a lot of time worrying about the Democratic Party if we don't win. I worry about Ohio. 
uh, I worry about the country. And so, you know, and this is just my honest answer. Uh, the Democratic Party will exist either way, but what, if we allow Mike DeWine to win, if we would ever allow people like Renacci to win, say goodbye to health care, say goodbye to Medicaid expansion, uh, say goodbye to a whole lot of other things that we need, uh, continue with the ECOT nonsense. Uh, Mike DeWine has, uh, and you guys, I, with all due respect, I don't think the national, the statewide media has been nearly as tough on Mike DeWine as he deserves to be. His, this sexual harassment case that, he's, that, he, that he got in the middle of, uh, his pay-to-play uh, with, with big donors, his ECOT, you know, seven and a half years of nothing, eight years of Mike DeWine as governor is one of the more depressing thoughts I can have given his record as the attorney general. It's a, it's a record of incompetence. It's a record of, of looking the other way and treating certain donors favorably. So uh, the party will do whatever it needs to do either way. We're a two-party system. But what worries me, what keeps me going every day is the consequences on the direction of the state, the health care of our citizens, uh, the, the, the need to change, you know, this terrible culture in Columbus. You lose uh, voter, voter suppression. You know, the, 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 um, the purging of voters is on the ballot this November in the form of Kathleen Clyde versus uh, LaRose. If we win, we can do something about it. If they win, they'll keep doing what they're doing. So I worry a lot more about that uh, and, and the consequences on real people, uh, let alone the outrage of, you know, what's happening on border with the separation of families or the crazy stuff in Helsinki, but from health care to jobs. And I mean, t we just saw today they're, they're not giving raises to federal workers. Why? Because they're bankrupt because of the tax scam. I mean, th those are consequences. So for, for me, honestly, that's what I worry about a lot more. If we do not, we have a chance to turn. I mean, right now with 68 days to go, we are tied or ahead in almost every statewide race. We are tied or ahead. That does not happen very often. We, are a we, we lean a little red in Ohio. With 68 days to go to be tied or ahead in most races is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Democrats. And if we do it, we can do a lot of great things. And if we don't, um, then, I, as I said, I worry less about every, all the candidates will be fine. The party will be fine. Um, We'll probably have more memos about consultants that get circulated a couple <laughs> weeks afterwards. But, but the real consequence is paid for by voters and by citizens who in the last two years have been treated terribly by, by what's happening in Washington. And for the last seven years by the state house, you know, we've had money ripped away from schools, ripped away from local communities like Cleveland, given out as tax cuts. It's just not, we have the highest, we have the highest uh, level of, of student debt in the country in Ohio. We're one of the worst in the state, when it, in the country when it comes to opioid crisis. We need solutions, and if we don't, if we don't succeed, uh, that's, those are the consequences I worry about. So I hesitate to ask this because it's not like you're going to say no, but right. you think it's going to be a good year for Democrats? I do. But, I'm shocked. No, no, but, but it's not automatic. And, and a lot of candidates, I appreciate them saying this, there's a big debate. Is there a blue wave or isn't there a blue wave? My answer is there will be if we build one. If we, if we can replicate the turnout and the energy that we just saw in Columbus in that special, where our turnout was in the low 40s in our most blue areas, their turnout was in the high 20s in their most Trump areas, we lost, and you know Delaware County well. If you had been uh, 10 years ago thinking that Delaware County would be like 53, 47, you would have said that's, that's not possible, um, or whatever it ended up being. If we can repeat through hard work and energy and knocking on doors and phone calls, the lift and turnout we saw in that district and the ability to win over moderate, including Republican, particularly women voters, we should have a very good November. If we also make sure that what's at stake in this election is not 
whatever the latest Michael Cohen chaos is or the latest tweet is, but if people see that our candidates are the ones fighting for their health care and that Mike DeWine and Jim Renacci and Jim Jordan are all basically attacking their health care nonstop, we also have a very good year. So if our message is strong and if we work hard, we can do it. But see, but it's not set in stone right now. We have 68 days to make it happen. If we make it happen, we can't have a very good year. A once-in-a-generation year, actually. So you're a young guy, and you've run for a statewide office twice now. Uh, do you have any future plans to run for office? I, I honestly have no idea. I am dedicated to this job, and we'll see it through. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I, I uh, probably have a few more books in me, too. I have some... A four-year or two-year-old. You left it on a cliffhanger, so I mean, you know, there's. It seems like there's True. more chapters. Yeah, to Jack and, start. and I also I love being a dad, and so uh, and you know, it's funny as a younger guy when people said, and this is kind of cynical of me when they said, "Well, I'm doing this. I leave this job because of my family." I think the media rolls their eyes, and a lot of people do. Given being a, a dad of a four-year-old, there's no more important reason to make a decision. I mean, I literally love being a dad. I love being with my kids. And so I wouldn't do anything unless it made sense. And so one reason right now, like I, I actually like the position I'm in now, although it is a little crazy because I, I do get to spend more time with my kids. And if I were Steve Dettelbach right now, who's running around the state and, and when you have kids my age, every hour with them is amazing. So who knows? I mean, we'll see. I, I, I'll put it this way. I enjoyed running and I really, I especially enjoyed being in office when I was in office. I was able to make a difference in the community I cared about. And, and that's very rewarding. And that's why as party chair, I spend most of my time trying to help people get into offices where they can make a difference. So we like to end on a little more lighthearted note, so we're going to see how this question lands, I guess. Uh, you notably got 180 parking tickets worth about $10,000 over right. the course of 14 years, and I'm wondering, yeah. have you finally learned where to park? Uh, yeah, but I've also le learned to hustle out there as quickly as I can. <laughs> uh, the Cincinnati parking folks are tough, and I was bouncing between city council meetings, but yes, I... Uh, I have a nice garage that I normally park in, and ODP has a parking lot, too, so um, that is well in the past. Have you just started lifting everywhere else? What's that? No, I don't. I, not not as much, but I, I uh, have worked hard to fix that. Obviously, I paid all that, so no one no one paid the cost of that more than I did. You're just doing your part to support the, the community. Yeah, that's what I said, but that didn't even go over well. But, it, it, you know, it, it, it was a, you know, in... in it, it wasn't a proud moment that I had all those, but it was normally those are happening because I'm literally in and out of meetings and they ran over. But yeah, I paid all of them. It was expensive. I'm doing the best I can. So no Ohio professional football team has won a playoff game since I think 1994. Yes. Uh, so which team is going to be the first to break I, the drought, do you think? So every year I say to my wife, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to waste any time getting excited for the Bengals. And then... Every year they do what they've done. They've looked really good in the preseason. Uh, they just signed their two best defensive players again. So I actually think the Bengals do look pretty good. Uh, so I think it will be us. Although, uh, you know, what's funny is Hugh, your coach in Cleveland, was awesome in Cincinnati. I mean, we actually were cheering. A lot of people were hoping that he would stay in Cincinnati and ultimately Marvin would become a front office guy and Hugh would stay. And and um, so it's kind of, I, I actually uh, I assumed that they would be doing better by now because he was terrible in Oakland. That didn't work out. He comes back since he was good in Cincinnati, goes to Oakland, isn't good, comes back to Cincinnati, Cincinnati is good. And so I actually thought he would do better there. But uh, I will say I do have, you know, when I'm I wouldn't have said this 10 years ago, but I come to Cleveland enough. You know, when when we're ex, except for when you're playing the. The Bengals, I'm cheering for the Browns. So I'm always hoping you guys go 14-2. Obviously, that's not happening. 
Having watched football with Andrew, I can tell you guys are pretty simpatico on your feelings on football and uh, your respective teams. So. Good. Well, like I said, I mean, I literally, the reason I got named most likely to be president of Cincinnati Board of Tourism was because at college, people from across the country, all they heard about was, was the Bengals, the Reds. Now, the cool thing was my sophomore year in college was when the Reds won the World Series. And um, I really talked that up. I predicted. They thought I was crazy. I don't know if you remember this. The Reds uh, were playing the A's, and the A's were the super favorite. And I'll never forget. Smash I sat, Brothers. Yeah. yeah, I sat around. Dennis Eckersley, I sat around uh, the dining room table, and, I, and I, would, I would talk more trash just without even knowing what I was talking about. I'd say, uh, but I guaranteed the Reds were going to win it in five. And we were the huge underdog, and obviously we swept. So I, had, I, I actually made some, and I also predict, remember Bob Huggins. Bob Huggins became the Bearcats coach, and I didn't know anything about him, but I said, Final Four, by the end, but before we graduate, they mean the Final Four. We were in the Final Four the next year. So Cincinnati had a good little run for a while. Uh, but I do think um, the Bengals are actually looking like they may be better this year than they've been the last couple. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Take care.